In book one of the Harry Potter series, a book um, when it was published in England, it was titled Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It was published in America. It had a more um, pedantic title, the, the Sorcerer's Stone. But in that first book, something appears out of nowhere, this magical thing that becomes very important for the entire series, and it's the Mirror of Erised. In the mirror of Era said, what happens is when a person looks into this mirror, the magic is you see not a reflection of yourself, but you look in the mirror of Era said, and you see what Dumbledore, the headmaster, describes as nothing more or less than the deepest desires of our hearts. So you look and see exactly what you long for more than anything else in the entire universe. And Erised, spelled backwards, is desire. So the mirror of desire. I think about the mirror of Erised, the mirror of desire, on the fifth Sunday of Lent every year. And here's why. The collect of the day is, is one of the most beautiful and one of the oldest. And it speaks of to God, for praise to God that God will des- grant us the ability to love what God commands. That's clear enough. And then to desire what God promises. Now that's remarkable. That if we could actually desire God and what God promises. Psalm 126 is a perfect pairing with this collect, and it puts all the color on these desires. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, the first verse says, Then were we like those who dream. Then were we like those who dream. Dreams are very important in Holy Scripture. Dreams are very important in the history of the human psyche. In the Bible, Joseph is a dreamer and an interpreter of dreams. In the New Testament, the other, Je- other Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, is warned in a dream to avoid Herod and go back to Egypt. Strangely, dreams send people in the Scriptures to Egypt, and I'm not sure what that's about. There used to be two priests who, who did a lot of work here a couple of decades ago named um, Wallace and Jean Clift. I don't know how many of you remember them. And I, I've come to um, love both of them. Bishop Rob O'Neill buried and I assisted Wallace, God rest his soul, about a year ago. Jean's still in Washington. And I've come to love them through their books primarily. And they did a lot of work on Dreams, and one of their books is, is wonderful. You can still get it online called Symbols of Transformation in Dreams. And Wallace and Jean always emphasized that dreams aren't only about giving us direction in our ordinary life. Don't go toward Herod. Go toward Egypt. Dreams on a deeper level they described as being a dialogue with the unconscious. And it's in the unconscious that that river it's just below the level of our ego and mind that we have strange visions, see things, memories, images, all the things that come to us in the middle of the night. And it's in that unconscious reality that if we have the courage to look into it, that we encounter the divine. A profound reminder, our dreams are, that life is more mysterious than we tend to realize as we walk around in daylight. 
Verse 2, then was our mouth filled with laughter, then our tongue with shouts of joy. There is, is nothing better than to consider in the middle of Lent laughter and joy. Laughter is such a holy gift. Someone told me this week that works on staff with me, she said, I always know it's the end of the day because your laugh gets higher pitched and louder. I took it as a compliment. (laughs) I love learning how when a person has a very predictable laugh, a full-bodied laugh. Think about how laughter has this unbelievable ability to draw our imagination and even our bodies above the mundane and the monotonous. It's this holy space in which we, we realize that life is absurd and God might be real and all of our plans and all of our chronology just doesn't add up to as much as life with God. And powerful reminder that the invisible and the unpredictable is real and right up ahead of us each moment. The collect is also Paired with two readings that are about desire for resurrection, God's most mysterious promise in the New Testament. Paul, Paul as usual, uh, works by way of ideas, which means that some of us find him a little bit boring, and that's okay. And he's got a great, great, but very sort of abstract idea here in this epistle, and the idea also hovers around all verbs that relate to desire. Paul says in the original language that he desires nothing more than to know the power of Christ and Christ's resurrection, to become like Christ in his death, so that if somehow, if somehow, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead, that great mystery that no eye has seen. John's gospel hovers around the same mystery, resurrection. But John, unlike Paul, and this is why some of us like him better than Paul, starting with me, works by way of symbol and story. And so we're in the middle in John chapter 11 of one of the greatest stories and the story about Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And a remarkable thing has just happened. They're all friends. The whole context of John chapter 11 is that Jesus really has friends. And his best friends are Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And Lazarus has died. You might remember the story. And Lazarus somehow comes back to life. But right before he comes back to life, we get the shortest verse in the Bible. Easiest one to memorize. Jesus wept. And he wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. This incredible image of Jesus Knowing, having a human friend, loving that friend deeply, and weeping. Weeping being the other side of the coin of laughter. Those two incredible human emotions. And he brings Lazarus back to life. And here we are in what is a a story or even a kind of parable or a kind of image of what resurrection might be like. That it will include deep, unending friendship. That it will include fellowship and the breaking of bread. It will include intimacy and community. And we have a spot around that heavenly table which no eye has seen. I 
I'd like to think about what resurrection will be like, what it will entail. Several months ago, we had um, here at the cathedral the Reverend Dr. Keith Ward. He's a priest in the Church of England. He's a retired Regis Professor of Divinity, which is kind of a big deal. He's a published author. And he's one of these uh, Anglicans, Episcopalians, who, who really wrestles with the central mysteries of the Christian faith in conversation with other religions. And what Keith Ward tries to do is, is, is deal, wrestle with those central mysteries, but reinterpret them in a way that's rational and intelligible to people in the 21st century. And what he says in a great book called Religion and Community is that whatever resurrection is, and we can't imagine it, wait and see, whatever it is, it's, it's a form of existence beyond space and time, something entirely new and unimaginable. But in light of stories like this one in John's Gospel, in light of the mystery of the sacrament we call Holy Communion or Eucharist, it will hopefully entail, resurrection will hopefully entail embodiment, sociality, memory, and complex consciousness. Embodiment, sociality, memory, and complex consciousness. I'm up for that. It's a very rational way of saying that we don't know that we can trust and hope that these relationships we've known on earth really, really matter and our individual personhood really matters to God. So much so that what eternity is is that God's love in Christ will never let go of us. We're always held close to the bosom of God. We're always held close at that table and we always have a spot there by grace. How do we desire that? Well, desires are personal to each of us. You're the only one who can look into the mirror of Erised or pray that prayer and know what the deepest desires of your own heart are. But there's some things we can do in unison as Christians and Episcopalians. And I think one thing we can do is this, always be aware that we stand as human beings between somewhere between memory and hope. The past and the future. That's also, by the way, what makes us neurotic sometimes. As we try to stand in the middle, anticipate and look back all at the same time. That's also the glory of being a human being. And we can look back, we can remember these memories of laughter, of joy, of dreams. And as Psalm 126 play, prays, for more of it, to restore all of it, restore our fortunes, restore our joy, restore our laughter, restore our relationships. And yet at the same time, especially as we age, especially as we age, becoming hopeful, or we might prefer the word curious about what's on the other side, curious about what's up ahead, curious and trusting that what is up there or around the corner, will be more mysterious and kinder than anything we could ever ask or imagine.